Thank you, Carl. Good morning, everybody. When you thought it was safe, I'm back up here again. We're going to be, this is the first of a series of seven uh, messages we're going to be giving on uh, Jesus's I am statements. In case you don't know what those are, John records seven instances in his gospel in which Jesus says, I am, and today's message is, I am the bread of life. So what we're going to be doing today is I'm going to be giving you a little bit of an introduction to the gospel of John, so just to give you an overview to help set the background for what's going to happen today. Then I'm going to dive into the, uh, uh, the passage, mostly out of John chapter 6. And um, I would encourage you, uh, this for the next several weeks, uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, so dust off your Bible, pull out your favorite Bible app, and just continue to read through the Gospel of John. There's, uh, I think there's 21, 22 chapters, just read a couple chapters a day, and, and that'll help uh, uh, set up, uh, get your mind in gear to see what we're going to tell you. I think next week Dan Kim's going to talk about I Am the uh, Light of the World, so... Without any further ado, I'm going to go on and give you a little bit of background about John, and hopefully, there we go. Uh, yes, okay, good, slides work. Um, as you know, John was one of the apostles, or maybe you didn't know John was one of the apostles of, of Jesus. He was one of the inner three. Whenever Jesus did something separately with a small group of disciples, it was usually John, Peter, and James. So John enjoyed a special, closer relationship than most of the other disciples with Jesus. And uh, Jesus, uh, John tells us, or excuse me, the uh, uh, church um, history tells us that after Jesus ascended, John moved out of the Palestine area and he went up to Ephesus, and that was his headquarters. And it was from there that he wrote the gospel that bears his name and also some of the epistles. Now, John was the last gospel that was written. It was written about 90 A.D. I know that sounds, if you remember that Jesus was crucified about 33 A.D. They believe that John was very young when he was following Jesus and he enjoyed an old age. We, uh, we know that from some of the writings of his disciples that followed him. So John was able to look and see what the, how the gospel was impacting the world over these 60 years. And he was also able to see how the world was impacting the gospel. So when he sat down and he reflected upon the things that Jesus said, he had a long time, obviously, to think about it. And so he put them into writing. However, there's a lot of people that don't think that John wrote his gospel. They thought it was written around 200 years later. So the, that, that got challenged um, hello. I'm having technical difficulties here. But there we go. Thank you. That right there is a, it's called P52. It's not to be con confused with P31. Uh, P52 is, it means papyrus fragment number 52. It's primitive paper, and they found it in the deserts of Egypt. And on that was verses and, and some words from uh, John's Gospel, chapter 18. And the significant thing about this piece of paper is they've dated it to 125 to 150 A.D., so it was much sooner than uh, some of the skeptics thought. And so, and that kind of makes sense because... I know that's a busy map, but in the middle of the map is Ephesus. Um, it's on the northern part of the uh, Mediterranean Sea. And Egypt's down on the bottom, so it's about 1,500 miles from Ephesus to Egypt. And it makes good sense. If John wrote his gospel in Ephesus, 
you know, it was copied from one village and copied to the next village, but it took it about you know, a few decades to get down. So if John wrote it in 90 AD, it may have taken 20 or 30 years for a copy to find its way down in Egypt. So anyway, the reason I mention that is very important we know who wrote the Bible. And Jesus was being an eyewitness, or excuse me, John was an eyewitness to Jesus. So that's, that little historical data adds a lot of credibility to the, to the gospel of John. Now John, um, he had a lot of unique material. 92% of what's in John's gospel is unique. It doesn't show up in any of the other gospels. He may have written it as a supplement to the other gospels. And when you read through John, you find some things that are mentioned in the other Gospels, but John just kind of passes over it very briefly. He's assuming that the people who are reading his Gospel have read the other ones. Like, for example, John mentions about John the Baptist being arrested, and that's all he says about it, whereas the other Gospels go into the much, much more detail. So John was assuming that the readers were familiar with the other Gospels. Also, um, in John, he... He has seven miracles. There's only seven miracles that he mentions. Uh, five are unique to his gospel. And the miracle we're going to talk about today is actually the only miracle that's common to all four gospels. But John does not call them miracles. He calls them signs. And they believe that the reason he did that was he wanted to take the emphasis off of the miracle and onto the miracle doer. So the signs were pointing to Jesus and who he was. So just a little distinction uh, that John makes from the other Gospels. Also, what you see if you read John is he keeps referring to the Jews. Well, if you're in Palestine, everywhere you turn, there's a Jew, right? Jesus was a Jew, the disciples were Jews, so who's he talking about? The Jews he's talking about here are the Jewish religious leaders. And he kind of casts them in a negative light because they were kind of antagonists to Jesus throughout his ministry. What was going on was that the Jews... Um, in Jesus, they were the first converts to Christianity. All right? So as, over the time, there was a conflict among Jewish peoples. Who were the real Jews? Were the Jews the ones that were continuing to follow Moses, or were the ones who followed Jesus as the Messiah? So John, is one of, that's one of the reasons he writes his gospel. And towards the end of his gospel, he states the purpose. He says, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and the believing you may have life in his name. So John wrote his gospel to remind his readers uh, who Jesus was, or is, and also to affirm to them that Jesus is God. Now John's gospel starts off, Carl read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word uh, was with God. So they got two relationships with the Word with God. Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then down in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Obviously, the Word he's talking about is Jesus. So the first two fill-ins on your outline are um, that Jesus is God, and that Jesus is the revelation of God to men. Now, another thing that, Jesus, that John did to, to point out Jesus' identity was these I am statements. Now, if you're a Jew and you hear the word I am, What's going to come to mind is Exodus uh, chapter 3, where Moses was tending his father-in-law's sheep. He comes across a burning bush. A voice calls out of the bush. It's, it's God, and God tells Moses he's going to lead the people out of Egypt. And Moses says, okay, if they ask me who send, sent me, who should I say? And, he, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am sent me to you. God said to Moses, I am I, who I am. Sorry, And he said, you shall say to them, to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
So that was what's going to go through a Jewish person's mind when they hear the word I am and it rolling off Jesus' lips. And it was kind of uh, got to get under their skin because they were struggling very greatly with the idea that God could be in human form. Oops. All right, the I am statements, there's seven of them. I won't go through with all of them, but uh, uh, the first one we're going to do is uh, I am the bread of life. And uh, let me give you a little bit of uh, background about, well, before I do that, let me entertain you a little bit with uh, some fun bread facts. By 25 BC, the Greeks had already developed over 80 different types of bread. So if you like bread, that couldn't have been a Greek. The Egyptians used bread as a type of currency. I don't know if for, for, uh, you if you remember back in the 70s, it was kind of a slang term here in the United States. It's like, hey, can you loan me some bread? And it was a way of saying, can you loan me some money? And I think today we say we use the word dough. The term sandwich, you ever wonder where the term sandwich came from? Well, there's this guy named Earl of Sandwich in the 1700s. You know, like you got the Duke of Wellington, the Prince of Wales. Well, there's Earl of Sandwich. Well, he gave permission to use the name for any time you had a piece of meat that was between two pieces of bread. So that's where the term sandwich comes from. Napoleon gets in on this too. During his Prussian campaign, he demanded a loaf of dark rye bread be fed to his horse, whose name was Nicole. And you know, it was, what he was saying was bread for Nicole, or in French, and I have to say pardon my French, pain pour Nicole, pain pour Nicole. Well, to the Germanic ear, what it sounded like was Pumpernickel. Pumper. <laughs> All right. Other bread facts. Uh, sliced bread wasn't introduced to the public until 1928. If you had a sandwich for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you could, you could do that for 168 days just from the amount of bread produced from one bushel of wheat. And a family of four could live for 10 years off of the bread produced by one acre of wheat. So wheat's pretty interesting. And I thought the United States was the top producer of wheat. Actually, it's China. So a little piece of trivia. Anyway, John chapter 6. Let me get back to the divine. I don't want to entertain you too much. Uh, it takes place in John chapter 6. Uh, it's along the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus had just fed 5,000. Actually, it was probably double that number. It says 5,000 men. The way they counted crowds back then was they counted men, not women. So there's probably about twice that many. And it was near the time of the Passover. So again, you have to remember, just like us, whenever Christmas or Easter is coming, we have different thoughts about the holiday that come th through our minds. Same way with the Jews. And what they would have been thinking about was the ten plagues of Egypt, the ten plague that... You know, the angel of death that killed the firstborn and the sacrificing of the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and then they would eat the lamb for, for the meal. Um, the tenth plague came, it killed the firstborn of Egypt. Pharaoh lets the, the Israelites go. They head out and they get trapped by the Red Sea because the Egyptian army is chasing after them. God, through Moses, parts the Red Sea. They get to the other side, and a long story short is God then feeds the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years with bread from heaven, manna. So that's all the stuff that's swirling through the, their heads um, as they hear and see Jesus do his miracles. And what would come to their mind is uh, Deuteronomy 18, where Moses said, 
He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From our countrymen, you shall listen to him. All right. Now, um, the next point in your bulletin is Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the prophet that, that Moses was talking about. So Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus was sort of an accident to just, you know, there are many, many, many other prophecies. So Jesus is God fulfilling his word and fulfilling his prophecy. So just as, the, as Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and freed them from slavery, the Jews were looking for someone to free them from the Romans, and they thought it might be Jesus. So they wanted to force him, take him by force, and make him king. Jesus didn't want anything to do with it, so he grabs his 12 disciples. They go up on the mountain, kind of get away from the crowd, Later that evening, Jesus sends the disciples back down, told them to get in the boat and go to the other side of the, of the lake or Sea of Galilee. Jesus didn't go with them. And there were some Jews who were watching. They were keeping an eye on Jesus. They saw the disciples leave uh, in the boat. They saw that Jesus was not with them. There were no other boats. But sometime later, maybe a day or so later, they hear that Jesus is on the other side uh, of the lake. So they hand over there, and then they have a conversation with Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever read John 6. It is uh, the dialogue that takes place. Is, it's two people talking past each other. So what I thought to illustrate that was we have a video for you. So, Christina, if you could prepare the video. If I was good, I could do hand puppets for you on the screen and you could. If you can't get that, Christina, I'll just move on. You got it? Will you stand still? Pick up your hat. Go pick up your hat. Okay. Now look. Then you'll go and peddle your popcorn and don't interrupt the act anymore? Yes, sir. All right. But you know, strange may seem they give ball players nowadays very peculiar names. Funny names? Nicknames, pet not, names. Not as funny as my name, Sebastian Dinwiddie. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Funnier than that? Oh, absolutely. Really? Yes. Now, on the St. Louis team, we have uh, who's on first, what's on second. I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find out. I want you to tell me the names of the fellas on the St. Louis I'm, team. I'm telling you, who's on first, what's on second. I don't know who's on third. You know the fellas' names? Yes. Well, then who's playing first? Yes. I mean, the fellas' name on first base. Who? The fellow playing first base for St. Louis. Who? The guy on first base. Who is on first? Well, what are you asking me for? I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first base. Who is on first? Have you got a first baseman on first? Certainly. Then who's playing first? Absolutely. When you pay off the first baseman every month, who gets the money? Every dollar of it. Why not? The man's entitled to it. Who is? Yes. 
So who gets it? Why shouldn't he? Sometimes his wife comes down and collects it. Whose wife? Yes. <laughs> After all, the man earns it. Who does? Absolutely. Well, all I'm trying to find out is what's the guy's name on first base? Oh, no, no. What is on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? That's what I'm trying to find out. Well, don't change the players. I'm not changing nobody. Take it easy. What's the guy's name on first base? What's the guy's name on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? I don't know. He's on third. We're not talking about him. How did I get on third base? You mentioned his name. If I mention a third baseman's name, who did I say is playing third? No, who's playing first? Stay off of first, will you? Well, what do you want me to do? Now, what's the guy's name on third base? Well, what's on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? I don't know. He's on third. There I go, back on third again. Well, I can't change their names. Will you please stay on third base, Mr. Broadhurst? Now, what is it you want to know? What is the fella's name on third base? What is the fella's name on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? I don't know. Third, third base. base. You got an outfield? Oh, sure. St. Louis has got a oh, good outfield? Absolutely. The left fielder's name. Why? I don't know. I just thought I'd ask you. Well, I just thought I'd tell you. Then tell me who's playing left field. Who is playing first? Stay out of the infield. Don't mention their names out here. I want to know what's the fellow's name in left field. What is on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who is on first? I don't know. Third, Third base. base. <laughs> oh, take it easy. Take it easy, man. The classic Abbott and Costello routine. Abbott, the gentleman on the left, was making statements using words that you usually word, use in a question, and Costello, the gentleman on the right, was not hearing a statement, he was hearing a question, and they were just going right past each other. And so that's kind of what was happening with Jesus and the disciple, or the Jews, rather. Of course, it wasn't as funny as Abbott and Costello, but, but let me just real quick run through what uh, was going on. If I can get my PowerPoint back. Hello. There we go. Well, I can't see that. So like I said, they, they heard that Jesus was on the other side of the sea. They go over there and they say, uh, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Well, that's the wrong question. What they should have said was, how did you get here? Now Moses had to part the Red Seas to go across it. Jesus just had to walk across it. And also, if you're a good Jew, you're familiar with the scriptures, is it should have taken their mind back to Genesis 1-2, where it says, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. So you had, and if they would have asked the right question, I believe Jesus would have told them, you know, it would have showed that he is superior to Moses. And it also would have hinted very, very strongly at his deity, but they didn't even go there. They didn't ask the right question because they had their minds made up, and they were very, very narrowly focused. Jesus didn't even answer the question about, when did you get here? He just goes, he says uh, to them, truly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So he's calling them out. He said, basically, all you guys want is free food. And he also goes on to say, do not work for the, work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. All right. Therefore, they, the Jews said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? So they're, they're going back to the beginning of where Jesus said, playing on the word work. 
But he says that we may work the works of God. They're totally missing. They want to be able to do the same signs and miracles that Jesus is doing. Wrong point. Jesus said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. All right, so Jesus is kind of pointing. He said, hey, you need to believe in me. So the Jews said um, to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now, these are the same people that saw Jesus turn. He broke five loaves and, and two fishes and multiplied and fed 5,000. These are the same people that saw it, and they're asking for another sign. Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. So Jesus knows they're still locking into, in their minds, that Moses is who they are primarily following. And he's challenging that premise. He says, no, it's my Father in heaven who provides the bread. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Again, the food, life, they're, they're thinking physical food, physical life. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is not talking about physical life. He's talking about spiritual life. Therefore, they were grumbling because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down out of heaven? And Jesus just stands his ground and he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. And if anyone eats of the, this bread, he will live forever. All right, so what's the point of all this? Well, John's a very crafty writer. He uses very interesting language in the original Greek. He also draws very heavily upon uh, the Old Testament. But he also, because he's had a lot of time to think about this, he puts some structure into his writing, and he creates what's called a chiasm. And that's a literary structure where you've got a passage of Scripture that has like one point at the beginning Using, same, using words or phrases, and at the very end of that passage, there's, there's similar words, so it's like a mirror. You come down a little bit further into the passage, there's a different idea, different thought, and then up from the bottom is, is another point that parallels that. So you have these parallel points, and since we're talking about bread today, it's like, almost like a sandwich. So it comes together, and, and the outline will look something like this, and, it, and the chiasm kind of comes to a point. So what's the point that Jesus was, was getting to, or that John was getting to when he wrote this? So over verses 35 through 49, he, has, he created this chiasm. In verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. You eat, you won't hunger or thirst. Down in 48 and 49, he says, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna, and they died. So there's a little bit of an opposite... Uh, Sometimes these chiasms are opposite. Or, uh, the next one he says, you see and yet don't... Oops. Yeah, you see and you don't believe. And again, from the bottom of verse 47, he says, he who believes has eternal life. So you see the words that are similar. Verse 37, all that the Father has given to me will come to me. And in 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the, the word Father's in there and coming and drawing to him. 
The Jews were grumbling in verse 41. Jesus tells them in 43, he says, don't grumble. So what's the point? There's only one verse left, 42. They were saying to him, is this not Jesus? Or they were saying amongst themselves, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? What the conclusion that the Jews came to was that Jesus was just a man. He did not come from a prestigious family. He does not have money. As far as we know, he's not educated. Jesus is just a regular man. And that's the point that John was trying to drive home. That was the conclusion that the Jews were reaching. So I thought that was very interesting that the structure of the passage is, is like that. Now, Jesus, sensing that they're not on board with his program, he employs a technique that was done uh, in the ancient world when there were teachers or rabbis or philosophers that had large people, large numbers of people following them, what they would do is to weed out or thin out the crowd so that only the true followers would continue. They raised the level of difficulty of their teaching, and that's what Jesus did here. Right after he says, uh, for the second time on the bread of life, he ends that little passage. He says, and the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. So he changes the metaphor from bread to flesh. All right, that really gives them a headache because it says, the Jews began to argue with one another, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is not the bread which comes down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and, and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. And if you see the underlying words in what Jesus said, when eat flesh, uh, blood, bread, you know, what, what comes to your mind? Well, we've had the luxury of 2,000 years to think about that, and what should come to mind is communion. Now, this was the Passover when Jesus was having this encounter. One year from that date, he was going to have his last supper. So Jesus was pointing ahead to the last supper. Now, it's interesting, in John's Gospel, he does not mention and go into detail where the other Gospels do, where they say, this, is, this bread is my body, which is broken for you, and this wine is the blood of the covenant. John doesn't do that. He, he kind of explains it here, whereas the other Gospels do. So Jesus was given a hint to his uh, disciples so that when they broke the bread at the Last Supper, they would be thinking back to this instance right here. And it's also going back because... Um, to the original Passover, where the Passover lamb that was sacrificed and its blood was put on the doorpost and the, and the angel of death passed over and they ate the lamb. Again, Jesus is pointing back to him being himself being the, the sacrificial lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So John's very sophisticated when he does all this writing. So what happened when Jesus raised the stakes and raised the level of difficulty? Well, the result that he got was Many of his disciples withdrew, and they were not walking with him anymore. They either didn't understand him, or they didn't believe who he was. So Jesus turns to his disciples and says, You do not want to go away also, do you? Now Peter, who's known for putting his foot in his mouth, he actually gets it right. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So the next point in your bulletin should be that uh, Jesus is our source of life. Peter gets, he gets the point. 
So the question that every human being on this planet has to answer is, who is Jesus? All right, this, there's no partial credit for this answer. You either get it right or you don't. Many of the cults have got it wrong. For example, the Mormons think that Jesus was just some special person who attained godhood. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses think that Jesus was actually the first created thing as opposed to being the creator. We have to know the Jesus that we believe in. He is God. He was God in flesh. It is a very difficult concept to understand, but somehow the eternal, the infinite became finite, the timeless stepped into time, and, it, and but that's the Jesus of the Bible. That's the Jesus who we believe in. And he's very simple. Jesus says, uh, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And it's just the two simple things. We just have to come to him, believe him, for who he is and what he did for us. And that's the invitation to the whole world. And it's very, very simple. Application. Let me impress you with my math skills here. We eat three meals a day. We eat 21 meals a week. All right, now here's where the math gets hard. We eat 1,092 meals a year. Maybe that's why some of us are overweight. But let me ask you a question. How many meals do you eat with non-believers? The last church that Brendan and I were at, uh, they, they challenged us to break bread with non-believers. So I applied this to, to myself. And at lunch at the, my office, I usually just would sit in my office by myself and pray, read the Bible. You know, it was kind of my personal devotional time. So I said, all right, there's people around me that don't know Christ. So I went down to the lunchroom one day, and I said, do you mind if I sit with you guys? And they all looked at me really strange. They, they scooted their chairs apart. They let me sit down. They let me join them. And they, nobody said anything, but I think they thought I was either a snob because they knew I didn't eat with them. I, you know, I just ate by myself. And some of them knew that I was a Christian, and they may have thought that I was thinking that I was better than they were, but that wasn't my intention at all. But anyway, as I sat down with these guys and started doing it, it is amazing as you get to know people. Because eating a meal, even like back in Jesus' time, was a way of fellowshipping, communing. It was, it was a sign of friendship. And when you eat a meal with somebody, you're building a bridge with them. And, and, and over the last couple of years, it's been amazing the different conversations that have come up with spiritual things. And I've been able to talk to them about my faith. Uh, I had a big discussion about defending why I believe the Bible is reliable. And it just came up in a very, very natural way. So I encourage you to find some non-believers uh, and uh, have a meal with them. Uh, is a suggestion I would give, um, and this may sound crazy, but uh, have you ever thought about starting a dinner club? Team up with another Christian couple from the church or whatever, and each of you pick a non-Christian friend or another non-Christian couple and get together once a month once every two months, once a quarter, and break bread together. It is amazing what can happen. You, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to have a theology degree to do this, but just in the course of natural conversation, you have plenty of opportunities to tell them about your life, what, what you do on Sunday morning, and just, you know, and God will come up naturally. It is amazing. So I encourage you folks to uh, break bread with your non-believing friends, so that you can share with them uh, the bread of life. Let me pray. Dearly Father, I just come before you and I thank you.